Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host, Grant Pemberton, and on today's episode, it's just Ken and I, and we're going to be talking about uh, some biblical issues that we feel like uh, might have been um, overlooked or uh, potentially it's just a, a difficult subject. And one of the things uh, I like about you, Ken, is there's really no such thing as difficult subjects uh, with you. And uh, there's no fear of, of hitting those difficult subjects. We were just together last week um, in uh, at Morningstar and you were teaching. And I, I think it's safe to say that we talked about some difficult subjects. And, uh, and but we saw the Lord move in those areas and uh, just a lot of healing came and, and all of that sort of stuff. And so um, just as a disclaimer, as a friend, uh, I'll tell you that Ken doesn't do this because he's a contrarian or uh, a pot stirrer. Uh, he really does try and um, just see what the Bible says and do what the Bible says, which really, Ken, is, I think, a testament to your roots. As far as what John Wimber used to say, let's just do the main and plain and do what the, the book says. And is somebody somewhere going to take the book seriously? So um, I know I appreciate that, and I'm sure so many of our listeners uh, do as well. So Ken, today we're talking about divorce. Yeah. Everybody's favorite topic, right? <laughs> <laughs> so tell me uh, first, before we get into to this, what was, what was the impetus of this? What made you uh, feel like there was a need that we should talk about this and, and why, uh, why now and what's going on? Well, I'll tell you, this has actually been something I've wanted to do for probably a few years and just various reasons, most of them having to do with lack of time. Um, I've not done it. Uh, and, you know, the context for why I initially wanted to, to talk about this is the very large conversation that's going on in our country about what is marriage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there is the kind of the traditionalist camp, which is um, largely occupied by either Christians or people who still hold to some vestige of a Christian worldview. Um, and then there's pretty much everybody else. Now, I will say in the Christian camp, they're not only Christians there. I mean, we've got Mormons in that camp. We've got Muslims in that camp. We've got Orthodox Jews anyway in that camp. Uh, there are some people beyond the Christian community, but the substantial majority of those who hold this uh, more traditional point of view tend to be people who have a what we call a biblical worldview. They found their ideas on things like this based on the teachings of scripture, and in particular, the teachings of Jesus in scripture, although there are other places that, you know, we need to look at also. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, um, I know this topic touches a lot of people. I know some statistics say that 50% of marriages uh, end in divorce, uh, both in and out of the church. So I'm sure uh, this is going to, um, to affect a lot of people. And uh, so we're going to work our way uh, through this. So Ken, yeah, T take us where you think we should go. All right. Well, we're going to start in the 19th chapter of Matthew's gospel. And uh, I'm going to read the passage just so that it's clear what it is that we're talking about. And besides some people may be driving or whatever and unable to open their Bibles. Uh, but again, this is, I, I want to just say this up front. This isn't really targeted at a particular individual or a group, but it is designed to help us think about what is God's plan for marriage? What is the, what is the intention that the Lord had when he created marriage in the beginning? 
And why is divorce such a serious thing? Why do we, uh, why do we recoil at it? It's not merely that there's human pain that comes out of divorce. And anyone who's ever been through one says it's the most horrible thing they've ever done and they would never want to do it again and they wouldn't wish it on their worst enemy. So it's not merely that. It's that God has a design, a plan, and an intention for marriage. And yet we see a rising tide of divorce. I will, I will make one clarifying remark to what you said, Grant. Um, I think the overall divorce rate is above 50% now. But I think in the church among committed Christians, people who order their lives according to scripture, and I'm deliberately using that language to order your life means this is how I live my life. This is how I do life. And sometimes doing life according to scripture may be challenging or difficult, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It just means it's challenging or difficult. But there are many things in life that are challenging and difficult. Getting promoted in your career is challenging and difficult. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do that. Um, you know, getting in shape and losing weight, that's challenging and difficult, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do it. So to order your life according to scripture is really, I think, um, it's at the core of what we mean when we talk about living a Christian life. And so with that, let's talk about um, this matter of divorce, because there are many Christians today who don't take this as seriously as they might. And uh, it goes this way in Matthew 19. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings and he's teaching about unforgiveness, and it's interesting that, it's, that it comes right after the unforgiveness teachings in Matthew 18, because at the core of a lot of divorce is unforgiveness. Uh, one partner or the other or both cannot get past some offense. And sometimes it's very, very serious. I mean, somebody commits adultery. Um, that's a kind of betrayal that uh, only those who have experienced it really know how deeply it cuts and how badly it hurts. And being able to forgive that uh, can be very, very difficult. And in fact, adultery is one of the few exceptions in scripture where a divorce is allowed if one has been adulterated against. So the Lord recognizes just how difficult it is. But again, it's interesting that this teaching on divorce comes immediately on the heels of the teaching of the unmerciful servant who would not forgive the man who owed him far more money than he owed. And yet then he turned around and tried to extract uh, from the man who owed him far less. And anyone who wants to fact check me on that can look at Matthew chapter 18, uh, verses 21 down to 35. But that's not my focus today. So when Jesus had finished talking about this unmerciful servant who wouldn't forgive, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea uh, beyond the Jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking. Now watch this. It, it, they're testing him. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to see if they can get him in something that violates the letter of the law. And in the law, uh, back in the books of Moses, there, is, there are strict uh, uh, strictures, is the word, for, it's forbidden to divorce. Thou shalt not commit adultery is really where that begins, but it's because adultery creates divorce uh, much of the time, many times. Once, once that happens, people say, I'm done. And, um, <clears throat> and God is trying to prevent people from uh, breaking up their marriages. In addition to that, if we look at the book of Malachi, 
There's a short little passage in Malachi that addresses the affairs of the day. I guess that's a double entendre uh, because people were having affairs, but they, they also affairs can mean just the, the matters of the day. But um, anyway, the scripture uh, speaks about those who have uh, those who have said to the Lord, and, and it reads this way, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts with favor, accepts it with favor from your hands. So people are basically saying, why are our prayers not being answered? Why is God not with us? And then Malachi answers that question. It's a, it's a rhetorical question. Um, it is, I'm reading from Malachi 2, starting in verse 13. But you say, why does he not? And then Malachi answers, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, in their union. So when a man and a woman who are married come together, there is a portion of the Holy Spirit who is present and joins together, solemnizing that union. And we are talking about physical union here um, because God blesses marriage and sanctifies it and makes it holy. This isn't the same as just shacking up with someone with whom we're unmarried. And why did he do that? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. So Malachi is speaking to a specific context in which apparently men were leaving their wives and were taking up younger women. This is adultery uh, as understood in biblical thought. And Malachi calls it out prophetically. Now, this is a very difficult thing to do, I'm aware, because people are already married to new wives. And you know, as we say, don't condemn them. But the, the righteousness of the Lord remains notwithstanding what our own sentiments may be. And so Malachi goes on and he says, for the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel. So this isn't just Malachi's opinion. It's God's word. This man covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So Malachi is speaking about this problem of faith, faithlessness, the inability to keep covenant. And so we have now the, the commandment that you can look these up in Exodus 20 is where the Ten Commandments are found. And then again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Um, either one, uh, the stricture against divorce is in there. And here we've got Malachi speaking of this way of life that the people have taken on. And by the way, we also have the entire book of Hosea, which I won't go through because it's too long, but over and over, he speaks of a spirit of whoredom that has come over uh, the people of Israel because they're no longer faithful to the Lord. And so even in the old covenant, marriage was intended to be a model or a mirror or an image or an earthly representation of God's covenant with his people and how he himself will not break that covenant. If it gets broken, it's only because the people of God themselves are themselves faithless to God. So now we're in, now we're in Matthew and they're trying to trap Jesus because the Pharisees know about what's in, in the 10 commandments. And they also know what's found in the book of Malachi. And they also know about uh, the book of Hosea. 
and the problems that Hosea had with a faithless wife. He was actually instructed to take a wife, it says, of adultery, and um, she was a harlot. And so as, as he's married to her, she's out having affairs with men, and Hosea is heartbroken, and the Lord causes him to do this, not because he wants to hurt Hosea, Hosea so much, but because it's a prophetic sign. It's an acted-out parable of the faithlessness of Israel toward God himself. And so the Pharisees are testing him and they say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And what they really are looking for is, you know, if I'm not happy with her, I can leave her. And there's a, there's a strong tradition in some of the earlier rabbinic writings that, you know, if your wife didn't fix food the way you wanted it, it was okay to divorce her. Um, so you could find very minor reasons in order to separate from your wife and send her away. And apparently the Pharisees are engaging in that same kind of thought that we've seen in Malachi. Only now this is Jesus's day. And Malachi is about 400 years uh, before, the uh, before the time of Jesus and the Pharisees. All right. So Jesus then says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate, or more traditionally, let man not put asunder. So once these two have been joined together in a proper solemnized marriage, they should not be separated by any man. And that would include a court of law. And so now the conversation goes on and they said, well, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And, and Moses didn't say you should divorce your wife and send her away. He said, if you're going to divorce your wife, there should be a certificate so that it's clear that she is officially no longer with this man with whom she originally was married. And Jesus answered that question saying, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now we don't really like this verse at all. It's a very, it's one of these hard sayings of Jesus. There's uh, books that have been written called the hard sayings of Jesus. Um, this is one of those really hard ones. Because what he's saying is if you divorce and remarry, you're committing adultery. In the plainest language, that's it. And that means you're violating uh, the commandment against adultery. And it's actually for this reason that for centuries, the church forbid uh, divorce unless there was proven adultery going on within the marriage. And of course, this is all happening in the context of a uh, male-centric society, a patriarchal society, so the presumption is that the man would send the wife away. But in a, in a society more like ours, it's more egalitarian. Um, this could be reciprocal. We could say that if a man commits adultery, then a wife could be justified in sending her husband away. But before we immediately say, OK, there's biblical grounds, it's great. We need to think about all the flotsam and jetsam, all the wreckage that comes out of even a marriage broken up over divorce. I'm not saying that everybody needs to stay in a marriage marked by adultery. But once the decision is made, um, the home will be sold, likely. Um, the assets will be divided. There will be a reduction in the overall wealth 
um, of the family, the inheritance for the children, if there are any, uh, will likely be reduced. And I don't just mean by the lawyer's fees. Uh, there still remains to this day disparities of income. And it's often the case that when a marriage breaks up, however well situated the wife may be, and that's really a function of how much money the couple had uh, prior to the divorce, um, she will probably not make as much as the husband will going forward. In some cases, she will. I'm not saying it has to be that way. This is a difficult enough teaching. So if you're going to get triggered, get triggered by the statement that if you marry another, you're committing adultery. Don't get triggered by the way I'm characterizing what often happens in the aftermath. That would be, that would be to waste your bullets. Uh, but anyway, and so the disciples say to him in the aftermath of this conversation, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. Why is that? Well, because there is a risk of divorce. There is a risk of adultery. There is a risk of infidelity. And so he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. But in so many words, Jesus is saying, yeah, in many ways, it is better not to marry. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, where he says, if you are married, you will try to please your spouse. And that brings you at times into conflict with the commandments of the Lord. But we know that in general, people do want to marry. They, they want an outlet for their sexual urges, but they want to have families. They want companionship. Uh, they want someone with whom they can build a future. And of course, all of that comes from shared values and shared vision. And many times couples don't explore that deeply enough before they get married. And so now they get into marriage and they're like, ah, an alien. Who are you? I thought I was marrying somebody who thought about things the way I did but you don't think about things the way I do at all. And oh my gosh, I don't even know if I want to be with you. And so they have deep regrets and second thoughts. That one, as difficult as it is, is actually not sufficient basis for divorce, according to what Jesus said. Now, there's another case we're going to look at in just a moment. So we haven't, we haven't concluded all of the exit ramps, but this is the most important one. <clears throat> a lot of times people... Uh, need to be way more thoughtful and considered about when and who they will marry. This is why we now often have premarital classes to kind of vet these issues, get them out on the table. And as, as I've often said, it's better to have a broken engagement than a broken marriage. Um, but maybe in earlier times, that wasn't quite as carefully done. Maybe marriages were entered into for say, monetary reasons. You wanted to cement a political alliance between two power, powerful families, but actually the man and the woman could not get along. They fight like cats and dogs. They don't, they are not even attracted to each other, but you know, the parents had arranged this and it was the right thing to do. And so they did it, but they, they end up miserable in that marriage. Uh, sometimes people enter into marriages because they're trying to escape a bad situation in their home. And sometimes these bad situations are truly horrible. I mean, they may be incestuous or physically abusive, et cetera, and they're trying to run away, just get out of the house. Um, that sounds like a reasonable exit until you get into those marriages, because the problem with those is many times people have brought all their baggage with them emotionally. And, uh, and so now the marriage is very, very fraught and oftentimes does not survive. So we need to be very considered about why are we marrying? Who are we marrying? What are we, what are we trying to do here? And one friend of mine likes to say, and I've, I've adopted the saying, but it's not my own. 
uh, likes to say that the best reason to marry is you realize that together you can serve God better than you could individually. But that would lead you right back to a common understanding of scripture, the Christian tradition, a shared sense of values, a shared vision of what life is going to be like. All of that and more is in the background of a conversation about whether to marry. So Jesus says, not everyone can receive the saying that it's better not to marry, but only those to whom it is given. And then he goes on, he says, for there are those who have been, uh, who are eunuchs who have been so from birth. Now, this is referring to those who um, are somehow misformed. And a eunuch is somebody who cannot reproduce, can, cannot have children. So those who are eunuchs from birth are those who maybe they were born without testicles, or there's maybe we could say they're hermaphroditic. Um, these are the kinds of exceptions people like to call out when they're having a conversation about marriage. Um, and okay, but the point is they're eunuchs. They, they don't marry uh, because it's not expedient to do so, or maybe they can't consummate a marriage. They can't function in the sexual sense in a marriage. Uh, and then it says there are those who have been made eunuchs by men. And of course, that doesn't go on very much in our time, at least not in nations like the United States. But in ancient times, it was commonly done that if you took men, especially young men, uh, prisoner in war, uh, you might castrate them with the objective that they would not have a sex drive and that they would not inseminate your women. And then those eunuchs became uh, important figures in the court. Of course, the loss of testosterone from the testes over time feminized those men and they, their voices, especially if it happens pre-puberty, their voices may remain high. They don't become you know, deep. Their facial hair may not come in. Uh, their bodies are not as husky and bulky as a normal male body. But anyway, Jesus recognizes, yeah, there are those who are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. He's not saying it's okay for this to happen, just to be clear. Some people want to take passages like this and throw brickbats at God because they say, look, Jesus approved of castration. No, he didn't. He's just saying this is a reality we face. And so for those people, marriage isn't really an option either. And then there are those who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, in the, in the ancient church, there were some people who literally believed this meant you should castrate yourself. I don't believe that. I think it's more they've make it, made a choice for the sake of the kingdom of heaven not to marry and to pursue the Lord and his work. And in that, um, they forego the benefits and pleasures of marriage for the sake of the kingdom of God. And then he says, let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So again, Jesus is recognizing not everybody's going to be happy to hear this teaching, and uh, only some can. So you aren't bound to be single. You can only do that if there's a grace given to you, an empowering ability to walk that walk. And Grant, you and I have talked in the past about how much each of us appreciates our wives. And um, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know how I would get through life without her. So there, there is, you know, marriage is something God created, and it does have a blessing and benefit in it. That goes all the way back to the order of creation. But there are some who choose not to marry and uh, to remain eunuchs. Well, what Jesus is saying by throwing this in, in this context, he says, if you divorce and then you remarry, you're committing adultery. What he's really saying is, therefore, if you've divorced, you are, you are making the choice at that point that you ought to be a eunuch. 
Now, not again, a literally a eunuch, but you've chosen not to remarry. You're going to serve the Lord in singleness, um, at least until your your spouse dies. And there's a there's a clear line in the sand in the old covenant uh, that says if if the former spouse dies, then you can remarry. Then it's not adultery. But if you're roughly the same age and you have you know relatively good health it might be a number of years or even decades until that former spouse dies. So <clears throat> the mentality needs to be, this is, this is how I'm going to live if this is what transpires. Now, let me say it again. I, I want to be compassionate. And I know that many of our listeners are, are likely divorced just given how common it is. And I'm not trying to condemn people, but literally no one teaches on these passages anymore. Uh, out of fear of being condemning. And I'm not so much trying to come after those who have already crossed that Rubicon, but rather to say to those who are contemplating divorce, to those who are um, maybe thinking about marriage with the idea that, well, if it doesn't work out, we'll just get divorced. You're on very thin ice if you are going into marriage with that kind of mentality. And we even used to say in traditional marriage vows, it's not said very often that ceremonies today, but it's still uh, in the Book of Common Prayer, for example, for the Anglican and Episcopal churches, marriage is not to be entered into lightly. Yeah. And so I think sometimes people are, are just a little bit too cavalier. All right. So that's what we have out of Matthew 19. Do you want to respond to that at all before we look at some other passages? Well, I, yeah, I will. I think that you have one other thing to get to first as far as what Jesus says are the, um, are the reasons of which uh, divorce can be lawful. Um, I do think, I think it's important. And I, I like what you're saying there. It's, it's, this isn't so much for the people who have already suffered this or yep. um, all of that, but it is, it's more for um, the people that are uh, a entering, thinking about entering into marriage Um you know, and be contemplating leaving their spouse uh, in one way or the other. I would like to ask a question and maybe you're going to, yeah, I'm sure you're going to get to this later. So if, if it's not the right time, uh, I can do it later. But, you know, as far as the, the people that have been left uh, who did not want the divorce, um, did not want, tried their best. I know several people uh, and I've passed with several people whose spouse just left them. Wouldn't, wouldn't listen to reason. Um, no, no real fault of their own. I mean, I'm, you know, it takes two to tango, but there was no, it wasn't as though they committed adultery or, or whatever. They just left them. Um, what, what do you say to those people? Are they also now in adultery if they go and, and try and find um, companionship or how does that work? Let me put that question on hold and come back to it in a moment because it, it actually was something I was planning to address. Okay. But I want to give one more teaching of Jesus. This comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and so there's a, there's a specific passage. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. And again, it's referring to this same saying. And remember, Jesus, he only comments on things that need correction. If, if the law is being handled correctly in his day, he just let it stand without really mm -hmm. making much commentary on it. So, uh, Matthew 5, 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, 
let him give her a certificate of divorce. Well, this is the very language we've just looked at out of Matthew 19. I did them in reverse order. Normally you read the Bible, you know, sequentially, but I, I wanted to bring out this conversation with the Pharisees and what was the background to it before we get into this Sermon on the Mount teaching. And Jesus says, but I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And the reason is because she's probably going to remarry. And so he's saying, for those who leave their wives, they are forcing upon her a situation that she didn't choose. And it, it, it has to do with this abandonment thing that you mentioned. But these days, as many women leave their husbands as husbands leave their wives, sometimes you know there, there's at least some rationale for it the case you described does not sound like there was much rationale, but probably he had another woman in, uh, in mind and was planning to go after her as soon as he was done with his what, current wife. That's, that's what generally happens. Um, so he says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality. So if she's committed adultery, then you can divorce her. But otherwise, you are making her commit adultery if she remarries. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery also. So if you, you know, if you leave your first marriage and you find a woman who was previously married, um, you're committing adultery as you join with her. And again, I'm not trying to condemn those who are now remarried, but, you know, oftentimes, how do I say this? The book of Hosea uses this saying, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And it's specifically knowledge of the ways of God, knowledge of scripture. And because these are such sensitive topics and such hot button uh, passages, most pastors don't dare preach on them for fear that they'll lose people out of their congregation. And so I'm aware that this is a very difficult conversation today, but this is what it says. You, you've committed adultery if you've gone after a divorced woman. So um, again, we're back to, wow, well, you better think very carefully about what you're doing when you marry be sure your values are aligned and not just, I would say, in the verbal sense, you know, we agree that we agree. It should be more, I see evidence that this is how you order your life according to scripture. And, and, and so I'm looking for a higher standard of proof. And I know in today's world, it can be very difficult to find a suitable marriage partner. And so many times people, I don't know, they take shortcuts. They, they say, well, well, he said, you know, he believed in marriage until death. And so I, I just took him at his word. But if you looked at the life that he had, the behaviors in himself, and this could include even something like pornography, which is relatively common in our society today. Uh, if he has a porn addiction, I, my advice to a woman who's looking at someone like that, or conversely, a man who's dating a woman with a porn addiction, some women have that. Um, my advice would be, you might want to hold off on making that marriage official until you've both gotten some serious ministry, I mean, legitimate, both inner healing and deliverance to get free of that, and then look for a period of, I'll, I'll call it single celibacy. You're no longer looking at the porn. You're no longer have the masturbation problem. Um, that's not to say you won't have urges, but you're not compulsively masturbating and finding an outlet for this uh, through pornography. You, you, you actually do want to be at that level of scrutiny before you enter into marriage with somebody, notwithstanding the fact that the biological clock may be ticking or you're very lonely or you know, whatever it may be. 
Now, you asked the question about people who are abandoned in Acts, uh, sorry, not Acts, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a church that he founded, and he says in 1 Corinthians um, 7, starting in verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, so obviously they've written him a letter, and they had some inquiry about, okay, how do we order and govern uh, married life? And so he's responding to this, and he said, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, he's not referring to marriage, as we'll see in a moment. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. So we, we understand Scripture in the plurality of what the Scripture says. So he's not talking about married life. In married life, sex is a fine and good thing. In fact, we already saw in Malachi that the Lord says he blesses the union of a husband and wife by joining his spirit to them as they join themselves together. So it's said another way, it's possible to have a spiritual experience during sex. Um, but here's what he says. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, which um, modern life is very similar to what life was like in Corinth in those years, I think in maybe the Middle Ages and maybe all the way up through uh, at least the early 20th century, I think there was an understanding that marriage was really re uh, sex was reserved for marriage. And so you just didn't do this outside of marriage. And if, if you had urges and temptations, then you go find a spouse and, and get married. So you have a holy and proper outlet for all of that. This is really how the scripture views this matter. So he says, there is a temptation to sexual immorality, to be engaging in sex outside of marriage. So each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. I love that egalitarian language. He's, he's speaking into a Greek context in Corinth, and we no longer have this sort of man above woman that's evident in the dialogue with the Pharisees. The woman should have her husband. The man should have his wife. Of course, this is a mutual thing. It's based in love. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Now, this is, this is a very interesting um, and, again, sensitive topic. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Now, this is based in deep rabbinic tradition. And, in fact, one of the sayings of the rabbis um, elaborating on the laws of Moses was that the, the husband had an obligation to please his wife in the bedroom. And, uh, and, and so, you know, we're on a public podcast here and I don't want to turn this X-rated, but, but let's just say the wife should be finding pleasure in the bedroom. This is not all about him and his pleasure. And so the, and he says it first, because again, it's a rabbinic tradition and, and uh, Paul is a rabbi. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal right. She has a right to sex. And just so, the husband has a right to sex. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So there's a mutuality here. So if you're getting triggered because you're like, he always demanded it of me and it was always unloving. Well, the, the context here is supposed to be love, not uh, domination. And certainly there are those men who have dominated and, you know, basically force themselves on their wives. But Paul's also contemplating the idea of a woman perhaps doing this to a man. And if a man has been sexually abused or a woman has been sexually abused, let's just say that makes marriage considerably more complicated. There are many people who go through this early in life. And when they marry, they think they're leaving it all behind. Or maybe they marry thinking, you know, I'll find pleasure in the bedroom that way. 
because I'm now with my spouse and I'm no longer with my incestuous father or mother or you know whoever, cousin, uncle, whatever it may be. Um, and what they do is they get into these marriages and maybe for a period of time they can, as it were, keep up a facade. But often those marriages are marked by conflict when it comes to sexual relations. There isn't a, a joyful coming together. It's sort of, do we have to do this again? We just did it three days ago. And, and that kind of dialogue ensues. And after a while, the one partner is feeling rejected by the other. And this is because of the shame and the leftover damage and trauma from whatever happened uh, early in life. Paul goes on and he says, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So again, one of the reasons that God gives marriage is so that we will have a holy and proper outlet for our sexual urges. And both the man and the woman have a responsibility to help the other one get along in this world in um, what we would call chastity. And here chastity does not mean abstinence. Chastity means chaste sexual behavior in a marriage context. And so what is chaste sexual behavior? Oh, excuse me, only with your husband or wife as appropriate. And so uh, it doesn't mean abstinence. And then Paul says, now as a con I say this as a concession, uh, not as a command or not now as a concession, I'm in verse six, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. And so most people point to this and they say, Paul was probably a eunuch, or if he was married, um, he left his wife behind and maybe they had agreed mutually for him to go on his missionary journeys and they deemed it better that she not be subjected to the rigors of the road, the dangers of being out on the highways and byways of the Roman empire, because he does talk about danger from bandits and other things that befell him. Uh, in his second letter to the Corinthians. So it may be that Paul um, was able to, you know, carry himself for lengthy periods of time while traveling uh, without falling into sexual sin. And then when he came home, perhaps he rejoined his wife. Just to be clear, uh, there are some commentators who have speculated, but there's nothing in scripture that proves it one way or another, that perhaps Paul's wife had left him because of his conversion to Christianity, and she remained a Jewish woman. And so Paul goes on, and uh, he says this, uh, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So here again, we see the singleness of Paul. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So the issue here is, are you bound up with sexual desire? Does it, does it you know, occupy all of your thoughts? Are you unable to conduct yourself in a, in a proper and appropriate manner in your interactions with the opposite sex? And, and this could be a man or a woman. I mean, it, it clearly says to the unmarried and the widows. So why is he saying widows? Well, these are women who have lost their husbands and yet they still have desire. And so he's saying, you know, it's better to remain single the way I am. But if you, if you don't have the self-control of you, if you can't get beyond that, well, then it is actually better to marry and have a holy outlet. And then he says, and to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. So this is, this is, thus saith the Lord. This is a, we could say a prophetic word 
The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Well, this sounds very much in tune or in theme with what Jesus had said when we were looking at Matthew chapter 19. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Well, there it is. So why is that? And by the way, if he does, then he should remain unmarried and be reconciled to his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. Now, here Paul is saying, I'm, I'm an apostle. I'm a leader in the church. I've seen Jesus. But this actually isn't thus saith the Lord. But this is the wisdom of a man who's been around the block a bit, who's seen a lot, um, who oversees churches and knows what people get into just because they're made of clay. Um, that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So this is Paul's best counsel. You should stay in the marriage you have, even if your spouse is a non-believer. But it's not a commandment. It's wisdom. But if a woman and if a woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So the fact that there's a believing parent gives some measure of grace, if nothing else, at least an example, and someone who may teach them the ways of the Lord that they would not have if they only had a non-believing parent. And so there's benefit in the two remaining together. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But watch this one, verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so in such cases, the brother or sister is not bound or is not enslaved or is not constrained. It depends on the translation you're reading. For God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul's making the argument here that if you're non-believing spouse wants to leave, then you have no obligation. You're no longer bound by that marriage covenant. And if you choose to remarry, it would be acceptable to do so. On the other hand, you don't know if you stay in that marriage, if you're able to perhaps bring your spouse over time uh, to faith. Peter has some language about this by essentially living such an exemplary life and showing kindness and gentleness. These are the kinds of things that many people are looking for in marriage, and they drive a suspiciously high percentage of divorces. You know, the, the wife says, well, he's abusive, or he's narcissistic, or, you know, he doesn't care for me. And so if, if, we can, if we can engage in a measure of self-examination and eliminate those kinds of patterns from our own lives consciously, because we're choosing to walk the life that Jesus walked, it may be that we can rescue some of these marriages and in so doing, turn the non-believing spouse to the way of faith because they look at the way the believing spouse is living and they say, wow, I mean, where am I going to find anybody as good as this? And so as we like to say, you know, Jesus is inherently um, appealing. But anyway, so Grant, to your question, if we've got a non-believing spouse who wants to leave, uh, then we're under no obligation and we're, we're called to live in peace. This becomes more difficult when we have two believers because, you know, many times Christian marriages do break up and they say they have irreconcilable differences. And on that one, I would say exactly to the point that I was uh, addressing a few minutes ago. Um, 
when we enter into Christian marriage, without maybe it ever being said, it's implied, but it probably needs to be said explicitly because of the problems we have with marriage. We are actually entering into a covenant to grow up, to become mature believers, and to show the character of Christ, and to you know, engage in a lifestyle where Jesus is modeled in the home. And yes, there'll be moments, we all have our moments, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a consistent pattern. Um, I was talking to Beth the other day, my wife, and it's always dangerous to use yourself as an example. But anyway, when we, I don't even know why it came up, but we were talking about, you know, when we first met, and we were, you know, we were going to, we were going to get married. She said, you know, I'd had other boyfriends before, but it was very easy to fall in love with you and to marry you because you treated me so well. Well, treating someone very well is more than just opening the door for them or buying dinner when you go out. I mean, it certainly includes those things, but it's really about, are you emotionally manipulative? Are you abusive? Do you pay attention to the signals that your spouse, and it could be a woman who does this to a man, and then he becomes what we call henpecked. Uh, but are you paying attention to the signals your spouse is giving you um, when they're feeling uncomfortable with the way your interactions go? I mean, all of this is implied. And this is when we say you need to work your marriage out. Part of what happens in marriage is you give up some of your own self-life, your own desires for the sake of the marriage. Uh, my wife has a dog. I don't particularly like the dog because he barks and he's this little yappy thing. Um, she likes him because she keeps her company when I'm traveling. And he, when people come to the door, he barks and that alerts her to the, their presence. Um, he's a companion to our daughter as well, our handicapped daughter. So um, I, I put up with the dog and I don't make a big deal out of it. I don't go around sniping at her or being critical or, you know, having that subterranean river of anger because she won't get rid of the stupid dog. It's just, okay, this is what she wants. I, I, this is not worth fighting over. This is not worth dividing over. So she has the dog and every now and then I'll make a joke. She made a comment the other day that she, he's now nine years old, according to the vet. And I said, does that mean he's going to die soon and we'll be rid of him? Well, but it was a good natured kind of a joke. It wasn't, you know, and, and the reason she didn't get triggered is I don't make comments like that all the time. So I'm giving a glimpse inside of what the kind of interaction we're seeking in marriage should be. And, uh, and hopefully also addressing this question of if you've got somebody who just chooses to harden their heart towards the commandments of the Lord and leave, they may still go to church. They may say that they're a believer. But I'll just say this. I've seen a lot of divorces between two Christian uh, you know, parties, two Christian parents, two Christian people. And if it's the kind of situation that you brought up, Grant, there is something going on in the heart of that individual who leaves. And again, they may have the outward form of godliness, but they're denying the power thereof. And God only knows their status from a salvation standpoint. I'm not going to presume to judge that, but I would say they are acting as though they are non-believers. They are doing that. And this is not acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. And so when the, when this one who has been left is now consigned to this terrible situation of, you know, I, I don't get to be married for the rest of my life. I'm living alone. Um, I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the mind of the Lord that people be constrained to that kind of a, I don't know what even to call it, a reduced and suffering lifestyle. 
No, I think that's good. Um, let me ask you a couple of questions uh, as, we, as we're kind of coming in on our landing descent uh, here. The first would be about uh, victims of abuse. Um, I don't think you're uh, counseling them to stay. That's correct. Actually, I was going to say, so we've talked about two cases where divorce is clearly allowed in scripture, adultery and abandonment. The third case, which is not quite as clearly articulated, but it, it, it seems very logical, is if there is physical abuse in the family. And so what is physical abuse? Well, it's about what it sounds like. There's hitting, there's throwing of things. Um, sometimes it's so dangerous. Bones are broken. People are put into the hospital. I don't think the Lord expects us to put ourselves at risk. And in fact, he even told his own disciples when he sent them out to preach. Of course, now they're, they're possibly subject to becoming martyrs. But he said, if they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Right. So if, if he's putting that on his apostles and his delegates whom he sends out, I think if there is valid, legitimate uh, physical abuse, and the only reason I put those qualifiers on it is, I have seen people make the claim of physical abuse, and it's actually not physical abuse. They just want to say that, and nobody really knows what goes on behind closed doors. And so there are some people who use that uh, as they're out, but it's, it's actually not that there's physical abuse. They're just looking for the out. So if it's genuinely physical abuse, that means you're being struck, things are being thrown at you. Uh, I don't know, they're doing things to sabotage your car, so you may... Uh, you know, run off the road, your brakes fail, whatever. Um, if they are beating the children, if there's that sort of thing going on, um, then yeah, I think it's okay to separate. But I would suggest very strongly in a case like that, that rather than immediately heading to divorce, that you get what we call a legal separation, where the debts that the one you've left, they become their debts, and any debts you take on are your debts, but you're, you're, the one you've left can't go out and run up $100,000 in credit card debt. And now you are jointly and severally liable for that. Legal separation means, okay, he did it, that's his problem. Or she did it, that's her problem. Um, and in addition to the, to the financial obligations that go with it, um, basically all of your legal affairs are separated so that you can conduct your life as though you are a single person. And, and I would do that for at least a period of a year or two to see if a reconciliation might be possible. Because now and then, doesn't happen all the time, but now and then if a, if a spouse is left because of this kind of behavior, it's sort of like a wake-up call to them. And they, they really do become very intentional about changing their behavior, getting counseling. We would add to that inner healing and deliverance ministry. And we believe that change is possible. This is at the core of the gospel. Um, so we at least want to give an opportunity for that to occur rather than just instantly hitting the divorce button. And unfortunately, sometimes in those settings, uh, this needs to be said, the one who is planning to leave because of this physical environment, they start finding another person before they've stepped out the door. And uh, they don't want to wait a year or two. They want to run into the arms of the new person that they're going to be with. Um, I counsel people strongly against that. And I always say, until you are divorced, you are married. And therefore, you should act like it. And that means no dating until the divorce is finalized. People say, how can I do that? It's so hard. It's just, no, this is part of the marriage commitment. And then once the marriage has been dissolved in the courts, 
then you can begin dating. And if there's somebody who's really interested in you and they share your values and you're trying to honor the ways of God, you won't violate your marriage covenant by even dating. And of course, nowadays, dating means you probably are having sex, but it's even not okay to be dating with a non-sexual uh, you know, relationship. You need to respect the marriage covenant until the divorce has been dissolved and then you can commence dating. And so it's very important, again, to be doing your due diligence on this new marriage partner. Many people who run out the door for another one, uh, they, they, they trade off one set of problems for another set of problems, and they don't realize they're doing it until it's too late. And now they're stuck once again in another marriage. Right, right. Um, okay, I, that's, I'm just trying to hit these questions that I can hear that I've been asked. Um, what about as far as the people that find themselves, you know, for whatever reason, lack of knowledge, rebellion, that was the past, they weren't following the Lord, they're in a marriage now um, that, uh, that they have, you know, for whatever reason would, would qualify for what Jesus said as adultery. Um, a, are you, I don't think you are, but I just want to make sure that you say it. You're not telling them to divorce their, their, their now spouse. Um, B, are they in this continual living in sin and under some sort of a curse? Is there something they should do? Uh, and, and all of that sort of thing. Can you speak to those two issues? Well, the gospel is, you know, rife with forgiveness. And, uh, you know, we, we see in one case, Jesus has brought a woman who was caught literally in the act of having sex. And, you know, they say to her, say, they say to him, master the losses, she should be stoned because of her adultery. And Jesus says, well, let the one of you without sin throw the first stone. And so one by one, the people that were going to stone her vanish. And then he says to her, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, well, they aren't here, Lord. He says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. So in that case, she gets a pass. So I think there is forgiveness for things that we've done in our ignorance and foolishness before we knew the ways of God. Um, but let's remember that if we married, uh, having committed acts that you know were sinful before we even knew that they were sinful because we were non-believers and we were, as Paul says, darkened in our thinking. Um, now that we are believers, the Bible doesn't say we should leave a non-believer. Paul says right here, to the rest I say, he does say it's him and not the Lord, but if, but if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, she's willing to stay with him, then he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So the, the, I would say apostolic wisdom dictates that you should not leave. Even, even if you undertook that marriage at a time when you were, when you were foolish and wandering, lost in sin. Sure, sure. Um, all right, let me hand another question and then I'm, we can play kind of put a bow on all of this. Um, what about as far as disqualification for ministry goes? Um, where do you see that uh, in the overarching view of the biblical context? Um, you know, and, and how does that work? So the passage that people point to, it comes out of first Timothy three, and it says that somebody who's going to be the, the Greek word is episkopos and we get the word Bishop from it. Um, more modern translations than the King James uh, tend to use words like overseer, which is a little broader 
uh, a, a pastor could be an overseer, say, of a congregation. So whether we mean literally a bishop or we mean somebody who's an overseer of a, of a ministry, it says that person should be the should be above reproach. There's, there's nothing that anyone can poke their finger at. And he starts out by saying the husband of but one wife. And, you know, I, I think this one is, is challenging because of that word but. It's pretty clear from the construction of the Greek that it means one and only one wife ever. That seems to be what Paul is indicating. It is true that in modern exegesis, many people say you can only be married to one wife at a time. But that's, look, there are people who are bigamous, but they are not common. And they rarely occur in ministry. I'm not saying they never occur in ministry because they do. Anything can happen to ministers, just like they can happen to non-believers. But it is not a common thing for people who are ministers to be living in bigamy. You know, usually the other spouse is going to be in some other city or whatever. And just the flow of the life of a minister, the mingling with a congregation, the responsibility of week to week preaching, there doesn't tend to be as much opportunity for travel away to, you know, engage in carrying on in that other relationship. You do see it more commonly with people who are, say, traveling businessmen, and they, they're gone a lot, and they might have, you know, a wife in one city and a wife in another. But, but the notion that Paul meant you can only have one wife at a time, I think is a bit specious because of the difficulty of maintaining a bigamous relationship and the fact that nobody was really seriously suggesting in a Greek context like Corinth having two wives. The, the, the Hebrews did it in earlier times. But even by the time of Jesus, it was not common for a man to have more than one wife. And so I think the language of Paul, as much as we may dislike it, as much as it may create strictures around people who want to be in ministry, feel called to the ministry, I think we need to say, you know, you can't, you can't do that now because you have crossed that divorce line. And this has been something that's been, I think, Let's just say this. What I am saying, as difficult as it is, and I, and I, I want to be compassionate for those who have made these choices. Um, as difficult as that is, what I'm saying is very much in theme with the broad tradition of Christian understanding throughout the ages of the church. And so if a pastor's wife commits adultery, I think that's fine. Then he can continue in the ministry. Um, you know, one might ask the question, what's going on in that home that she felt so dissatisfied that she wants to commit adultery? Because usually women who are emotionally unsatisfied are, are the ones who step out. And so it might be something for the board to inquire about. Is there something in this pastor's life that needs addressing before we allow him to remarry? But I would say per se, the fact that he did not break the covenant and she did, does not thereby disqualify him from ministry. Uh, the second given example of um, if you have a non-believing spouse, I don't know why a pastor would have a non-believing spouse. I would say that alone would probably be a disqualification from ministry because we want the spouse to be a believer in order to enter into the life of the congregation together uh, with him or her. Yeah, I think, I think most often what we run into are uh, people that go into the ministry and maybe before they were um, converted into uh, into the faith, they had had another 
uh, spouse or something like that. Um, I'm assuming that what we talked about before, where they were darkened in mind, all that sort of stuff, that doesn't count. I don't know. No, no. If if, if they're if they entered into a second marriage or a third marriage, um, even a fourth marriage, uh, before they were converted, and now they and their spouse have come to faith, um, and they feel called to the ministry. You know, the former things have passed. All things have become new is what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. So the new creation uh, language does apply. And so, no, in in such a case, um, this individual who has, you know, put all of that behind them and, you know, there's there's ample evidence of new life and regeneration and they, you know, the hand of the Lord is with them in the ministry that they do. Um, I think it would be fine to ordain such a person and allow them to even lead a congregation or become a, a leader. But it's because of the death of the old man or the old woman uh, through the process of conversion and baptism. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's important for people to hear, uh, you know, e- even as we're talking about something that's so difficult, um, it's it's a subject that many people will accuse uh, to be legalistic. Um, and all of that, you know, at the, at the heart of it, Ken, I know that you have, uh, you've pastored people in one way or another for a long, long time. And, and, um, and I have as well, not as long, but you, you see, there's really just a few of the same issues. It's not, it's not as though there's a, a million different reasons. I mean, there's like maybe 15, uh, that you see the breakdown, uh, of the family that you see the breakdown of a marriage, you see, uh, all of that sort of thing. And I think what, pe- what we want people to hear is that, man, everyone is coming into this marriage with some form of a brokenness, um, some, some form of baggage, and it's hard, and it's hard enough on your own. And then, and then to, you know, to bring in someone else and to navigate through the difficulties of, you know, like you said, you know, maybe abuse in their past, in their childhood, maybe, uh, you know, maybe all of these sort of things. And so when you're entering into this covenant, you know, it, it is, it is something like, like, and I actually use the book of common prayer whenever I, I do uh, weddings, because it is something that we shouldn't be taking lightly. It's something that we should be spending as much time on as we do you know, researching our, at least our mortgage rates and our refinances and our job interview. I mean, I, I, oftentimes people don't take it as seriously because typically they're young or they're lonely or they're, they're trying to, to fill some sort of void or they're, you know, they're worried about their biological clock plans. Um, and then they, we get into these, these situations and, and, you know, it's, I don't think we understand even, I don't think we understand the, the spirituality of sexuality and, yeah. and why it's so important and what, you know, Paul says, listen, you're joining yourself to a person, like a prostitute, like you're, you're bringing Jesus into that mixture. And, um, you know, I know the enemy understands the power of, uh, the spiritual power of sexuality. And I, I know that he's, he's, always at work in trying to do that and, and all of that. And we, we, I don't think we have a great grasp on many of those issues. And so I think as we're sitting here talking about this, it's important to, that people hear our hearts, even though we've, we've kind of gone through the scripture in kind of a didactic way and all of that. We're sitting here as people that have counseled, I mean, countless people in broken marriages and, and broken relationships and all of that. And I think, I think what we want people to do is to say, be careful in this um, and to think more uh, about it, pray more about it, bring other people into this um, 
and and if we want us if we want to to be a people that defends the sanctity of marriage and and all of that i i do think we have to look at it harder you know yep. it's 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 somewhat uh pharisaical to try and rail against same-sex marriage or whatever and then also right. at the same time not take traditional marriage whatever that it's serious as seriously i mean i think there's a very big disconnect there I, I think if we want yeah if we want to be integrous uh in our views and, and what we say boy we really do have to hold uh marriage in a really high standard it's the one you know i was thinking as you were even saying this ken and i could be off and you can correct me you know he he's he he very much says don't make any images of him and you know, no, no graven images, all that sort of stuff. But isn't it interesting that the one kind of physical representation of him is a marriage? You know, the yep. one thing that we're kind of allowed to to do, it's like, this is the thing. He's the, he's the groom and we're the bride. And there's so much there that we're supposed to show the world, you know, what it's like and how much more important it is for our marriages uh, and our relationships with one another to be, uh, to be held in that high of receipt, you know. When I did my uh, daughter and son-in-law's wedding, when I performed that ceremony in 2020, um, I made a comment during the marriage ceremony that who would have ever thought that the day would come where the mere act of joining together in marriage as a man and a woman would be a testimony to the world of our faith in Jesus. But we have come to that time. And that is itself sufficient reason for us to fight for our marriages yeah. and to find our way through. And, you know, let me just make one quick comment here, Grant. I know we're about out of time, but I, I just want to say this. Um, it, it's funny. When I was a kid, not funny, it's ironic. We use the word funny different ways. Uh, it's ironic. When I was a child, when I was a kid, I remember my mother uh, talking specifically with her friends, not about me, but I overheard it. Um, I, I, you know, she, she was a widow. Uh, my father had died. And so it was just the two of us and she never remarried. And that was a choice. She chose to make herself a eunuch, uh, as it were, because, um, because she wanted to devote herself to raising me well. And she couldn't convince herself that the various men who were her suitors would, uh, be a good father to me in one way or another, there was some aspect of doubt. So she made that decision, but I would overhear her talking with her friends about various women that they knew in common. And I, I don't know that I ever knew who any of them was, but anyway, this term would float up in their conversa conversation, frigidity. And they would be talking about a woman who is frigid, but let's be clear, men can be frigid too. And there are many women who suffer through sexless marriages because the man loses desire. He loses his sex drive. Um, anyway, frigidity can be a, something that is very, very damaging to a couple. And it is typically brought on because of rape or incest. And this is why um, we have actually an entire chapter of the Bible, Leviticus 18, forbidding various degrees of incest. And it elaborates on what we broadly call sexual immorality. Um, so adultery, fornication, all of this is destructive. And what ends up happening in many marriages is we mentioned this earlier, but the, you know, one or the other spouse, sometimes both, they come into the marriage thinking they're going to escape whatever that other hellish existence was. 
Um, but they get in that marriage and there's so much shame or there's so much pent up anger that they are a rageaholic, especially towards the person they're married to, because generally that person they're married to is the same sex as the person who raped them or touched them or whatever they did to them. And so between the anger and the shame, pretty soon the sexual relationship dies. And this is contrary to what Paul said, that you, sh- you actually have an obligation. Obviously, it's mutual and it has to be on a rhythm and in a time where neither party feels abused by it and, and all of that. But, but the point is sex is going on. That's really the point. And, uh, and it, it's going on regularly within, and it's satisfactory to both parties. Um, so... What ends up happening is the marriage dies and it becomes a sexless marriage for many years. And I just want to say this to those who may be caught in those kinds of marriages or who may have left marriages like that. I never went looking for a ministry of sexual restoration, but the Lord brought it to me. And at this time, as we're making this podcast, I've prayed for over 3,500 people who've been set free of every single form of sexual abuse and deviancy and what the Bible calls immorality. And this includes, it's not limited to, I don't want to make it sound like I've done 3,500 cases of frigidity, but it includes people who have had frigidity in their marriages. And a lot of times people say, well, I've tried all the counseling. I've tried all the inner healing. I don't know exactly what to say into all that, except that there's a special grace and it's called deliverance. And I've often said, and people think I'm joking, but I actually mean it, even though I say it jokingly, when deliverance is what you need, nothing else will do. And so, yeah, you do need counseling and yeah, you do need inner healing. But in nearly every case I've ever encountered of this frigidity, again, on the male side or the female side, um, deliverance is necessary because there are spirits of rape and of incest and other things that are in the victim of that from that previous time in life. And I have literally seen marriages that were dead, resurrected, and I've seen natural desire return. And just a very humorous short vignette. I remember praying for a woman who had been gang raped and, uh, and she was married and they had a kid, but she had lost all desire and her husband was climbing the walls and uh, she came and wanted prayer. And after her deliverance, um, they sent me a joint message saying that they were like newlyweds and uh, they were having sex multiple times a day and all of her lack of desire was gone and the lack of desire was gone. So she had desire and, uh, and they were one, one message they sent, we did it on the kitchen counter. We did it in front of the fireplace on the bearskin rug. I mean, it just went on and on. I'm like, this is too much information, but there was something, even if it was a little bit X-rated, there was something tender. There was something, really disarming about the fact that two people who had lost their marriage and were probably headed for divorce could recover their marriage. And they went on and had multiple more children uh, as a result of coming together. And they are still married to this day. And I can't say too much because you never know who's going to listen and it could actually disclose the individual. But I'll just say this woman had always had aspirations for her career that she had never realized because of all of that was going on inside of her. And she went on and achieved her career goals in the aftermath of all this. And so I want to offer hope to those who have been in those marriages where frigidity has been a problem. Jesus heals frigidity. And if you have that problem, 
Um, we have a we have a ministry now up and running through Orbis, and it's you can go to orbisprayer.com, and you can sign up for a pr- free prayer session, completely confidential, with two prayer ministers, and um, you can get free of this, and you can save your marriage. So if you are thinking about ending your your marriage because you think, well, you didn't talk about the situation that I'm in. I want to address this in closing and say Jesus heals frigid marriages and you can have a wholesome, holy, fulfilling, fun-filled life together and and you don't necessarily need to end up in divorce. Yeah, that's so good. And I think as we we end this, um, there is no condemnation and that's not what this is for, right? And that's right. uh, and, and if, if Jesus does take marriage seriously, then he also takes the healing of marriage seriously. He also takes uh, the restoration that marriage could, can have seriously. And, and so we do want to leave you with hope and uh, that he can. And we have seen it. I know I've seen it. I know you've seen countless uh, stories of just unbelievable restoration because at the heart of our message, of the Christian message, is, is absolutely new life and restoration. And, and he can bring that even to your broken marriage. I highly recommend you uh, taking advantage of this, of this uh, uh, prayer ministry that's offered. Uh, I know the people praying have been uh, trained and vetted and uh, by Ken and his team. And um, there is hope. And we want to leave you. We want to leave you with that hope. So Ken, yeah. any last thing before we sign off? Let's just close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you gave us marriage. It's actually a gift, even though for many, it doesn't seem that way. But Lord, we know that the reason marriages fail, the reason they are painful, the reason that they often don't seem to be a gift is because of the sin that entered the world through the fall. And it affected every single aspect of life, including our sexuality and our romantic relationships. Father, we pray for everyone who will ever listen to this podcast, whether uh, live or on replay, that you would reach down into those parts of their soul where they feel shame where they feel pain, where they feel hopeless, uh, or where they've been through a divorce and they feel devastated. And um, they think there's just, I can never go on. And now I hear this podcast and I'm being consigned to this horrible existence in the future. Father, you are loving and caring. And as the scripture says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. I pray that you would bring comfort to them I pray that you would bring healing to them. And I pray that you would cause many marriages to be saved because of this broadcast today. And that um, those who have not known the joy and the laughter and the fun and the intimacy of a, of a healthy marriage under you, that they would find that and be able to say that the Lord is good in all things, including this matter of marriage. We thank you for your goodness to us in Jesus name. Amen. 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 I think uh, there's probably going to be a part two. Even, even as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking about questions about kids and all of these sort of things. And so uh, I would say, Ken, if you're up for it, maybe we'll do a part two of this. Uh, yeah. As this, this idea of this issue of family is such a huge uh, issue in our, in our day and time right now. Um, thank you, Ken, for taking our time and for, for doing the work and putting the work in, uh, in this. I know this has been something you and I have talked about for a long time of what you wanted to do. And so uh, it certainly seems like it's uh, there's an anointing on it. And so thank you for, for taking time to, to meet with us. I know you're getting ready to fly off to who knows where. Um, and thank you all uh, for tuning in and for listening. 
Uh, again, Ken, what's the resource where they can go and get prayer real quick? A uh, free prayer can be had at orbisprayer.com uh, or maybe it's .org. I actually can't remember. Check both. It might, we might have both domains. Up. Uh, it's one or the other. Orbis prayer, one word, O-R-B-I-S-P-R-A-Y-E-R. And I guess there is a link probably at your website, which is Orbis Ministries. Yeah. Yeah. So the website's orbisministries.org and we do have a bridge. So you can click on it there and it'll take you to the proper site to schedule a prayer appointment. Awesome. And that's not just for divorce. That's for anything. And so I just highly recommend and encourage you guys to all take advantage of that. Otherwise, we will see you right back here this time next week for another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. recently updated the Orbis Ministries app with Ken's free teaching archive. You can click on the link in the description of this podcast to download today.